This is the Chakula Podcast, bringing to you all the relevant topical issues and discussions about food in Kenya and beyond. We break down complex topics and dig deeper into ordinary day-to-day happenings touching on food and farming systems, bringing you a holistic, dynamic view on the food we eat. Welcome, I'm your host, Felistas Mwalia. Welcome back to the second part of the conversation on decolonization. Dr. Njoki, Professor Kimani Njogu and Jokubudi will be sharing with us on whether decolonization of our food and farming systems is the role of the state, the individual, or the society, or whether it's a collective responsibility and what the government has done so far. Is it enough? What needs to be done? Karibuni. We've really been seeing our seeds being lost, how we relate with food also being lost. But from your, from where you sit at an individual capacity or at an individual level, how can we ensure that this is not lost? What are you also doing to ensure that this is not lost? I think that um, the level of, um, of our constitution, um, because uh, there is provision, and I think... Um, in Article 69 of the Constitution, which deals with, among other things, environment and, and so on, there is um, a stipulation on the protection of seeds. Um, and I think that that was, that was very incisive on, on the drafters, that we, did need, we do need to secure our seeds. Uh, we do need to ensure that farmers are not at the mercy of multinationals that, um, you know, bring in seeds which are not reproducible. Uh, because our farmers, um, they, you know, they, they, they are amazing. I mean, they grow, they grow crops and they know that these ones are for, 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 for planting. So they, they kind of, these, these ones are for eating, these ones are for planting, and they store their foods nicely and they wait for the rains, and they actually plant the seeds, and, and, and so on. And, and this, this, um, this has been very important. But then come in the multinationals with their, their, with their seeds and their chemicals and pesticides and so on, and completely destroying that which we could... Our farmers are no longer able in certain parts to replant the seeds because they were given the impression that uh, the seeds that they bought were better and they planted those and they tried to store the, you know, like they assume that this is a, a continuity of, you know, storage of seeds of planting and then they realize nothing is actually germinating. So um, there is work to be done um, by those of us who uh, engage with policy I think there's a lot of work to be done by government um, and also civil society. I think we need to do more to protect the farmers. We need to do more to diversify the foods. Um, we are aware of the challenges of um, the ground because of overuse and so on, um, and that we do need to use, you know, um, 
kind of to move away. I mean, you see, the argument for GMOs, for example, is that uh, with GMOs you become more food secure. But it's a lie, really. It's a lie. Um, the the net effect of GMOs on our people is so um, devastating that you we are better off affirming, you know, um, affirming the sanctity and the dignity of our seeds, of our crops, and so on, and exploring ways in which we can amplify, you know, um, those, those, those seeds and, 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 and systems. We have scientists who are able to do a lot of work uh, in that area. And um, they just need facilitation and, and, and more capacity to do research uh, in terms of multiply, multiply, multiplying the opportunities of, of seeds. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, there is misinformation, lots and lots of in, misinformation, which comes with um, the tyranny of, um, of neoliberalism and the tyranny of um, overthinking that only one part of the globe has monopoly of ideas and um, really uh, forgetting that, as my colleagues have said, thinking and the, and the extension of the mind has always happened in human societies, you know, across the globe. And that it, it's, it's extremely arrogant to assume that just because people have capital, that they have the monopoly of what is possible. Um, and I think that we need to deconstruct that narrative very systematically and to say that we are thinking people, we, we are able to come up with solutions that are not driven by multinationals and that we can protect um, um, the, the dignity of our people uh, to, you know, and, and actually um, ensure that whatever they have uh, is reproducible, it's, it's, um, it serves them well, it protects them, it dignifies them, it connects them with, with the past and the future, and that uh, to the extent that our students are going back to, they're going to school and they're doing experiments and they're doing all sorts of innovations, that it is possible for us to have the best that is rooted in our particular locations without, of course, um, um, undermining the best from other parts of the world. I mean, we recognize, as we said, um, that knowledge is not located in one particular place. So we do not also claim to have monopoly of ideas. Uh, we continually learn from others and we can pick the best from other jurisdictions um, uh, to serve to serve ourselves and to serve our people. So I, 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 I think that um, there is quite a bit of work to be done. Um, uh, but fundamentally is to look for ways in which our communities, our people are food secure, that um, they are not at the mercy of the tyranny of the, of the, of the multinationals and that they, uh, they feel protected um, from the aggressive, what could we talk about uh, aggressive advertising, um, which misinforms them because they trust. You know, I mean, we have to rebuild trust. Mm. 
Um, they trust that information that comes to them is genuine, um, but it could actually be misinformation um, on, on, on what's good for them. So I, I think there's quite a bit of work to be done, and I think that there are a number of people doing this. We just need more to, be, to, be, to take an interest in these matters. Yeah, thank you so much. Despite all that being done, like with the multinationals trying to trying to improve food security in the country, still the numbers of hungry people is still increasing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, we have. Af- I mean, you know, you if you look at um, the continent, um, Africa, with approximately one billion people, about two hundred fifty million of our people are still food insecure. So 250 million people, and, and, and part of the reason, really, uh, forgetting, of course, the, the vagaries of climate change and, and, and so yeah. on and, and so on and so forth, part of it is just the choices that have been made on, on cropping and, 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 and food and, and what is important for our people. So you have huge, you have a lot of acres of land um, that are growing you know, crops that are meant for other jurisdictions precisely because they bring in the money, but where does the money actually go? So, um, so you know, I mean, I think that the future really is investing in smallholder farmers, mm. giving them um, all the support they require to grow and feed the families and the neighborhood because smallholder farmers feed their families, they feed the neighborhood, they feed the nation. Mm -hmm. So giving them the dignity, the support, minimizing um, this attraction to large-scale land-based investments, which are um, just have a small group of people who um, do not reinvest and recommit themselves to communities, but rather... Uh, for self-anglicizement and for self-benefit and, and so on. And um, yeah, and, and, and really also to, to push back at, at the narrative of, you know, you, um, the narrative around consumerism and to say that uh, um, we can decide. I mean, we, we know we consume and we, and we, have, we, we like leisure, we enjoy moments and so forth and so on but but we get we should get to decide what you know uh, and and these um rather aggressive manipulation of thinking uh, really does need to be fought back yeah, yeah. It does yeah i really like what you said and i feel like i need to contribute a bit to some of what you said in terms of like supporting small scale farmers one thing that really frustrates me is the aspect of us always assuming the farmers need, they always need someone from outside to educate them on what they should do. But the farmers themselves are the experts. They do they do this on they do this on a daily basis. So they basically know what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. To move on with the conversation. Joe, do you feel like the government is doing enough to ensure that our indigenous food is not lost? Our indigenous food is not lost and also Basically, is the government doing anything, and is it is it our responsibility as individuals, or is it a collective responsibility? Mm. So, a couple of things. Mm-hmm. If you look at the food global design, as it is right now, as as Professor said, that we actually don't 
underproduced food globally. A lot of food actually goes to waste. So looking at our, our global food designs, uh, a lot of food that is produced is actually goes to waste because spaces where how it has been designed, a lot of it is centered around the Western nations. So that means is that even as 250 million Africans are food insecure, actually food going to waste. So I think, and, and that's really tied to what I mentioned under this matrix of power. So thinking about how, even moving towards your question, that I think one, we need to recognize that these global designs are held together by three things. One, international, multinationals, international systems, you know, uh, you know big, big organizations out there. Secondly, the states. You know, Kenya as a state, Uganda as a state, America as a state. It holds these global designs. Thirdly, the class of people that hold the state together. So once you understand that, I think it's very, it can be a bit disingenuous even for one to, 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 to press the state to, to do something that is not designed for. It's a bit, a bit disingenuous to, 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 to say that. That said, I think we need two, two projects concurrently working. One is a reform project whereby how do we engage with policy at the level of uh, international organizations, FAO, the UN, ETC, to, to redesign some of, this, some of these things in terms of supply chains, how do you make food more local, ETC, as a reform project, you know, and that as well also within the government pushing them in terms of how do they, to what extent do we know, knowing how it was designed, that it can keep uh, indigenous seeds, indigenous products, indigenous culture, ETC, to the extent that we have an awareness of how this thing was designed can 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 maintain those three things. And, and thirdly, with places like this, also a bit of education information towards this particular class of individuals who hold these global designs intact, such that to to demystify, to denarrativize things that are toxic and harmful to to the majority of people who are going food hungry, but also nations at large. But concurrently to that, knowing its limitations, some conversations that can't be had with them that can only be had within the levels of the political society, you know, where you and I, not within not within the level of the state, a level of the political society, knowing how do you start having conversations with local farmers, with local farmers to, to, to cultivate, to, 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 to restore their own indiv- indigenous products, seeds, etc. Knowing because that kind of change can only happen at that level, at the local level, knowing... Uh, you know, if we can do supply chains at the level of policy, but there, there has to be a, a different conversation and a different way of organizing away from the instruments of the matrix of power, such that we understanding that this, you know, Bible says a good fruit can a good tree does not produce a good a bad fruit, etc. So knowing that very well, how do you start having different conversations at the level of the politi- global political society, away from the institutions that hold this matrix of power together? So that conversation we have in a, a podcast like this happening in jockey spaces, Professor uh, Professor Kiwani spaces with local farmers, with local organizations away from this matrix of power. And ha- so you, you build a kind of, no, not electrical mass to, en- to, to engage, but what you're doing is that you're building for building sake for yourselves. So you, as, as Njoki said, you're centering, you're recentering the conversation. So, and does the government have a role to play in this? I think, as I said, the, the, the role of the government in this space is is people knowing that that space is a, is a is a conversation on reform, 
Mm-hmm. So being very aware of its limitations because of how it was designed. So you're, you're very aware of its limitations. So we're going there, the level of policy reform, in a sense, a stopgap measure to a certain conversations. We can have the conversations around. A couple of weeks ago, I think there was, a, there was an act that the politicians passed around seeds. Mm-hmm. Like we can take that to court because we have the Constitution of Kenya and 269 says, you know, we, we can do that. So we, we, so it's understanding to what, at, at what level do st- this particular stakeholder can intervene. I think at the level of the state, I think the Constitution has given us space for a new social contract and there's much to be done there within this new social contract that I think Kenyan civil society organizations, media ATC have yet to do, but I think we can do as regards policy reform. As regards, how do we put more money to small-scale farmers? How do we service for agricultural products? How do we market for the for the people? Uh, but understanding that limitation is also another, a different conversation that, that that can happen within government. And I think uh, the more radical conversation around uh, in the, our you know sustaining in, in, uh, our indigenous seeds at, at that really core level of really restoring our human dignity. Will either come from us reimagining a whole new society as well, a whole new society altogether, but but and I think both 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 of these can happen concurrently. I want to add mm-hmm. two things. One, mm-hmm. um, I think it's important it's important to also understand the context in which um, smallholder farmers, uh, the ones who are feeding Kenyans, mm-hmm. the context in which they are farming, who they are as individuals, mm-hmm. um, in what in what in what ways, how, what are their own attitudes towards the jobs that they're doing? Because there's pieces of conversations you hear everywhere. Um, there's that there's that wider statistic about how Africa is going up. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for this farming, which is mostly done in rural areas? Um, if the vast majority, remember, of Africans, um, there's a large chunk of us who are aged 15 and below, Right. Um, and that the assumption about this whole oh everybody's going urban nini nini um, is that is that a large chunk of these people are going to move into urban areas and that urban areas are not they're not set up for smallholder farming at least not the vast majority right so maybe in peri-urban areas you might find some farming going on but not you know the way it happens in in rural areas which is where the vast majority of it goes on so when we then go back to think about the, the individual smallholder farmer, in what context are they farming? What farming would they want to hand over if that is a thing that they even want to hand over? There's a lot of conversations about um, uh, land changing hands. So who owns land? Who gets land when smallholder farmers, you know, transition to the next, the next, the next forms of existence? Um, and then what is done with that land after that? And I think there's a lot of stuff happening there that hasn't quite been mapped uh, while we are here focusing on, oh, Africa is going urban and, oh, we have a demographic, you know, bomb. What is, what's the word? Demographic? De- dividend. Dividend, dividend. yes. Yeah. And I hate the word dividend because that's a word for paying out for shares. It's not a word used on people, you know. Uh, this whole thing where we're just kind of salivating at the opportunity to extract from these young people because we've, quote, unquote, invested in them. Uh, we kept them alive it's it's quite it has a terrible taste in the mouth so that's um that's 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 one thing um that that's actually the two points really where we look at this population of people who have watched 
their parents and their grandparents and their relatives and their communities, the ones who are farmers, be heartbroken, be ignored, be um, be be underinvested in, have poor um, outputs, um, deal with you know the violence of middlemen, all of that and still manage to feed people and then look at their lives and decide that that's not the life that they want and that that's a very valid point of view from the place that some of them are coming and that there's not, there there are not enough, you know, people who then romanticize the idea of farming and then go and set up a little, you know, greenhouse or you say, let me just, you know, I have a little piece of land somebody left me and then you leave your, your farming you, you leave your 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 city job or your white collar job, but then you you know have a little weekend jaunt, which is actually hobby farming. It's not career farming because career farming is the one people cry when the rains yeah. don't come when they're supposed to come. It's not like well, you know, we planted the thing, it didn't work. Let's try again. Like career farming is like you buried your hopes and dreams, and they were supposed to grow and bear fruit, and then now they don't. And I'm not saying that hobby farming is a bad thing. Far from it. But I'm saying that hobby farming cannot solve systemic problems, right? In the same way that um, uh, when, when, when Joe was talking about uh, these systems are designed to work in certain ways to benefit some people and that they have to extract from some people in order to benefit these others. It's how they're supposed to work, you know, and then everything else was built around maintaining them and propping them up, which then means that truly the only way that that's going to change is massive reform. But it's also very easy to have these conversations at very high you know, top line, but we have to come back consistently to who are we dealing with. Mm. And if we ask the farmers, are you happy about farming? You know, beyond the the usual kind of election year statistic from the polls, 75% of Kenyans are worried that Kenya is going in the wrong direction. What does that mean for a farmer? What does that mean for a smallholder farmer who feeds their communities, who has relationships within the market, who, you know, prays for the death of a middleman, whose child, you know, is fed and goes to school based on the number of hohos that they harvest or the number of fixi oranges. And I love that Kenyans call them fixi, an F, right? Fixi. Fixi. They're pixies, but... Pixies, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, because our, you know, our tongues yeah. meet... English where they meet it, you know, because English is now ours. I love that people say now they're Englishes. There's no one English because it doesn't belong to to England anymore. Um, when they dis, when they you know when they diffused it out to everybody, it became ours. So now we can talk it about we can talk it how we want. But like yeah, when we think about these young people who are supposed to take over <laughs> in an agriculture heavy economy, what context are they entering farming from? Yeah. You know, and then we have to talk about things like Moi and the 4K Club and was that successful? And is that a, and then there's all these let's make farming sexy again. And it's like, you know, young people in Kenya will do anything if you tell them there's dignity here and there's money. You don't need to make that, like the dignity and the money are sexy enough by themselves. Like you don't need that, oh, like farming has to have tech for young people to be interested in it. If you tell somebody that you can get a good salary from tilling the land, they will do it. Mm. Absolutely, and and you need to, alongside this investment, mm -hmm. really, uh, to think about um, the services that are offered to farmers, because many of our farmers do not have a lot of money. So yeah. you should have, you know, healthcare facilities nearby. You should have schools that are affordable nearby. You should have electricity and water nearby to allow it, you know, to make it possible for them to produce. Mm -hmm. Because once, you know, if, if, if they are struggling to send kids to school, 
how will they actually produce food for the families and the neighbors and so on? And, and, and Joki, thanks a lot for bringing in the issue of urbanization, because if you look again at the ways in which Africa is urbanizing, mm. it's actually urbanizing in highly agriculturally produ productive areas, mm. red soil. You don't do that. Yeah. You don't do that. You don't grow your urban spaces where you should actually be growing crops. But again, you know, that's what's happening. And 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 and, and, and that's happening when we still don't have a plan for arid and semi-arid areas. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we, no, we don't. And just want to, to what you're saying, mm -hmm. Prof. You have to be very careful about this urbanization conversation. Because uh in, in Europe, for instance, the reason why they had a, a Peasant, a peasant proletariat is because guys left their farms in the 15th century, the Grand Revolution, to go to the to the urban cities to work in industries. Yeah. We are not industrializing as a continent. Yeah. But yet we're still so when we talk about the nature of urbanization, it has particular has particular nuances and differences. Uh you know, urban cities, you know, as Dr. D once wrote a places where Africans, you know, you live light knowing that anything happened and you can move back home. So we really need to even see what are some of the factors that are influencing this, this idea called urbanization. Mm. And that's, that's a space for policy reform. As, as a professor said, is it health, health, health to, to the spaces? For a good example is in Kiambu with uh, the, co the, coffee, the coffee farms in Kiambu because of the collapse of the global, global coffee markets mm -hmm. and just... Uh, a government spending, if you look at the government budget from 1980s to 19, mid-1990s, every year it will go down to about 5-7%, uh, no less, in terms of the budgeting. Currently, if you look at the budget of agriculture, as security goes up, agriculture budget goes down. Wow. Mm. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? So, so we are sectorizing the state, but agricultural budget, and you're talking yeah. about food security, security, actually food is actually the primary mm -hmm. food security, you know, aspect of, of our society. So I think there's a level of this kind of policy conversion saying, listen, look, our budget, food security budget, is our agriculture budget year by year is going down. Yeah. Hence, if you look at our military security budget, other areas is going up. Then how then do we fill those gaps such that we don't, because in my view, what, what is what we're calling urbanization is mm. really, is really it's labor extraction. Mm. So it's an intentional starving of certain spaces so people ha are forced either to make their land, a case in point, Kiambu, red soil into... Apartments. Precisely, mm. because of the collapse of the coffee, you know, tea prices, etc. And then also, even as we talk about the role of government, I think we also need to realize that the biggest impediment of the, the agriculture, education, security is the government. Yeah. You know, we, we need to realize that government is the biggest regulator of of things not moving. <laughs> you know, we saw the act about recently about seeds. So that means farmers may now have to buy from perhaps a government agency that is supplying those seeds. That shouldn't be. That Actually, should be. not even government, but from private, from private. Precisely. Private so we need to really think about how do we more fundamentally around the conversation about how we can really talk to government. It's like, we need to have a conversation about how do we, how do we democratize our economy? How do we democratize our economy? I had a conversation I took with uh, Kwame Wino, and you know, you know, in certain sectors, I mean, we know this, the sense that you find uh, political families or certain individuals have 70% of certain agricultural sectors, isn't it? 
So what does that mean for small-scale farmers who are in that business where there's hostile takeovers, you're starved of logistics, transport? So because at the core of these things that how do we now start having to democratize uh, our our economy? The constitution give us a good a good baseline in you know, chapter four, chapter eleven, chapter six. Give us a good baseline of how do we democratize our economy? How do we how do we uh, how do we make sure some of the, some of the government bodies are just set them and they become cartels because of this we have a feudal economy. Mm-hmm. So even part and parcel of making sure small scale farmers thrive is actually having conversations about we need to democratize our economy. We need to uh, the the competition commission needs to just say listen. Uh, we need to one, we don't have a database of all companies to one, for instance, two, we need to say uh, in this sector, for instance, you can't have control more than 30% of the share market. You know, so so that gives, it gives wiggle room and agility, one for supply chains to become more local, because if I know that uh, I can control maybe my 0.3% market around Westlands Kilimani area, I can supply my groceries, my bean stuff. But then what happens if you go to Marigiti even at that local level, there's a cartel. So the, the regulation that the state puts, it, 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 it in itself creates a catalyzation of society so that even at the, at the level where there isn't formal regulation, we call the informal sector, there really is a, there's a cartel there. It's actually wild because um, what, what, we then, what we're then saying, especially to young people, and, and I really love reading, um, well, I don't love it because the, the content is alarming, and also not surprising at the same time. But um, when you read all these kind of attitudes of young people, do you know those studies? Yeah. Attitudes of young people towards X and Y and Z. Um, and, and, and I think there was one where that someone had studied, and I think it was the Khan University, I think. I could be wrong. Mm. But uh, they had studied, I think, uh, political, social, economic attitudes of young people, mm. I think, in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda. And um, young people said, I mean... If corruption is a way to improve, you know, yeah, to improve my life, yeah. then you know, I guess like it's deal. not it's not even a thing, right? And and the thing that I wanted to point out there very specifically, um, and very tied to what Joe was saying is that what we are communicating to what we are communicating to young people is that you you must be a plutocrat, mm. right, in order to to buy your way out of the generalized suffering of the Kenyan people. So you need to buy, you need to buy access to healthcare with dignity. You need to buy access to what people call quote unquote world class, which is another phrase I hate, world class education, right? You need to buy access to certain types of opportunities. You need to buy your way into certain rooms where your future is assured because when you leave your future in the hands of the state, <laughs> there's problems. Mm-hmm. And so then even the reason that people go into politics becomes that they want to control the hand of the state with regard to the outcomes for themselves, not necessarily to the outcomes of Kenyans at large, because maybe they think that, you know, like it's too far gone. The problems are too many. You can't solve them for everybody, but we can actually solve them for ourselves and our little cartel. Yeah. Thank you so much, Njoki. From today's conversation, it's clear that the food on our plates is not just... A combination of inert ingredients subjected to heat, but rather a reflection of various structural forces in in contestation. As we conclude, do you have any closing remarks, Prof. Joe, Jockey? 
Yeah, I, I think that um, I really like what Joe said uh, with regard to, um, you know, reforms and the role of um, of leadership, um, uh, you know, in, in whether, whether that is national leadership or local leadership or even international leadership in ensuring that uh, the world is food secure. I mean, and, and also recognizing that sometimes the state... Uh, is held captive by multinationals uh, that we, we might think that they're actually very independent in decision-making, but um, they are held captive and therefore to understand the limits um, under which they're working and, 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 and especially where the state itself is dominated by people who are devoid or um, have an have a, um, integrity deficit, um, then you have, a, you have a huge problem. So I, I, I think that for me, it's to look at these issues as interconnected, um, that um, when one is uh, talking about food uh, one um, and food security, one would, of course, be also talking about the politics, um, the politics of food, uh, the economics of food, um, the, the politics of land, uh, and, 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 and also you know, recognizing that um, across Africa, you know, land has been central to the democratization uh, process and that one cannot talk about the democratization of the continent at any one stage of that effort without paying attention to land, uh, whether it's at the point at which the Arabs are getting into the continent or whether the Portuguese are getting onto the continent or the Europeans, um, uh, the... the, the, the Land was always the critical heritage uh, of our people, and they fought to retain it. And I don't see that uh, that stopping, you know, you know, land and its various uh, possibilities will always be the place where people retreat to claim their dignity. And I think that that will ha- that that will happen even with the with the with the coming of multinationals and the investment in the large-scale land-based investments that the West is pushing for Africa to take up, to grow food for Europe and to grow food for America and, and so on. I think that our people will push back at this um, because it's land that defines who they are. And, and I think that um, by paying more attention to what happens on the land, whether whether it is land being used for um, industrial purposes or land being used to secure, you know, um, certain benefits and so on. Uh, it will always be, um, it should be always be invoked uh, to reclaim dignity and our humanity. I mean, because again, you know, if you, if you think about it, uh, uh, land is part of who we are. It's it's not it's not disconnected from from us. Therefore, our food uh, coming from the ground, you know, and and, and nourishing us, and then um, uh, taking us back to the land, is such a full circle. And and finally, uh, to say that um, at the African Union level, this year is supposed to be the year of uh, nutrition and food security. And I, I'm, I'm actually looking closely to see how that idea of uh, the year of nutrition and food security gets translated in terms of um, concrete action 
to secure you know uh, our foods uh, and 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 to minimize the the effects of multinationals if uh, in terms of controlling what we eat um and 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 of course listening more to the small scale um you know a holder uh and the type of support and the type of knowledge you know for me i mean even repackaging knowledge about food um and 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 and, and agriculture in local languages you know because i mean we our our, our farmers notwithstanding the fact that they have a lot of knowledge have every right to um to benefit from the knowledge that is coming out uh, uh, from the discoveries and so on, and that this knowledge needs to be repackaged and re- represented in different formats and in different languages. So again, thank you so much for today. Yeah. One word that has really come up during this whole discussion is dignity. Over to you, Joe. In, in, in 1992, we liberalized our politics, right? We introduced multi-party and we had... We had many more people in the public sphere having conversations. In 2010, we democratized the state. I mean, we're still in the throes of that social continental conversation. I think moving forward, even tied to even conversation around food, we need to really democratize our economy. Because at the, at the core of, I mean, as, as Njoki rightly said, plutocracy, oligarchy, it's really, you, you, have, you have a bunch of you guys who, who want to hold everything for the rest of so we really need to have that conversation around how do we democratize our economy. Of course, talking about uh, in the food space is really talking about space for the small-scale farmer. As Njoki again said, focusing back on those people, on the individuals and their stories, and centering those conversations, but also centering them in terms of policy. So we know small-scale farmers' access to, to a market, has access to farm inputs, extension services, uh, and also around him, building an, an infrastructure around him. So if it's health health sector, which Anjo Kieno is there as well, uh, if it's education, really, really need to have a question on how we democratize our economy. Uh, the Competition Commission, which is a, a government body, really said, how do you how do you democratize our agricultural sector such that when we have more players? Because the reason why young individuals as much as all it's sexy, come and try it and then they go back to, you know, kicking and, you know, doing menial jobs is because it's not democratized. You have you have sectors where you have political players or individuals who have monopolized the sectors such that uh, individual farmers can't sell their produce or can't, can't gain access to certain markets. Uh, we, we have trade policies that, 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 that make it that stifle small-scale farmers to export their goods. So only certain players with enough capital can export their goods to certain parts of Europe where they'll, of course, accrue more profit. And even in those processes, since they're not democratized, they're, this word that we like in Kenya a lot, they're cartels. But the reason why they're cartels is because it's not, a democrat, it's not democratized. So if you have demand and less supply, these are rules of economics, you've got a black market. The black market is is infiltrated by all sorts of characters, you know, from cartels to regulation. So we really need to have move the conversation. Really, in my view, how 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 does government regulation, in particular aspects, how does it undemocratize the food sector? How how do certain players, if they are not checked, but private players in particular, how do they how do multinationals access land in parts of the country with very few very few processes where you can find multinationals buying chunks of land in parts of the country and doing farming for export. And yet there are farmers who, with very little uh, very little protection, 
farmers have been literally conned. It's really conned out of their the pieces, the small pieces of land. Mm-hmm. So I think the conversation that we need to have, not just in the food space, but I think as a country, is that how do we democratize this economy? Yeah, thank you so much, Joe. Okay. Something you have said has reminded me of um, a friend of mine who, mm-hmm. you know, also does weekend farming. Um, and 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 he was talking about somebody who who he knows has gradually transitioned into full time farming because of being able to get um, a significant amount of reliable income per month from a very small piece of land. Now, that is the ideal for the smallholder farmer. And the main question to ask is why is the reality for this one person so vastly different from the realities of all other smallholder farmers? And how do we bridge this wide gap? Right, because there's again globally, even in the region, what anything, even if you throw a stone, there's no shortage of people to feed. Like that's that's not the issue. I feel like we'd been having very good problems if we got to the place where actually, even by statistics, we are we are we are generating so much food that everybody is full and they still surplus. Like we have now problems of biblical proportions, you know, in good ways, right? Um, so that's so that's one um, with regard to tangible increases in the quality of life of the farmer as a person, not just as a worker. Because when we talk about the farmer, even the definition of this person as a farmer is that one who farms. And so in order for them to be looked at and considered, they have to be farming. Right. Mm-hmm. So even if we are talking about, yes, what are, what are the working conditions for the farmer? What, is, what are their occupational health situations? What is the enabling environment for them? That's all a business perspective. It's all an economic perspective. And we, we fall into the trap of, you know, the people who are salivating over demographic dividend when we now salivate over these farmers and say, you know, when we treat the farmers well enough, if we fertilize them, we water them, they will grow, right? So we are also looking at them eager to extract um, when again, if we go back to what Joe was saying at the beginning with regard to decoloniality as a revisibilization of the self, as one who is worthy, who is worthy of dignity, who is worthy to be seen, who does not need to earn any of those things, even by labor, you know? Mm. So that is one whole thought. The other thought, uh, the one that I want to conclude with is um, with regard to nutraceuticals and um, one of the one of the one of the widest gaps there is currently um, in Kenya with regard to healthcare. We are we are pretty savvy with regard to communicable diseases. We know a lot about significant numbers of them, uh, including obviously HIV, where we are leading in the continent with regard to how we manage it. There's gaps for sure, but we have extremely progressive and quite radical um, policies, uh, etc., with regard to HIV and, and AIDS management. Same with TB. Um, even with COVID, we've tried. There's been Again, massive gaps. Um, there's still massive gaps going on. There's a lot of nonsense. Um, but, you know, communicable diseases, we are somewhere. Uh, pneumonias, diarrheas, waterborne diseases, malaria, all of them. When you talk about non-communicable diseases, right, mm-hmm. the gaps begin to show very significantly. Um, there's a wide variety of people who, you know, will tell you, I have sugar, nikonasukari. Mm. But then we don't understand uh, what that means. How does that change your quality of life? What do you, etc, etc. Same thing with Nikona pressure. I have pressure, mm. which is high blood pressure. And one of the biggest boogeymen 
in non-communicable disease um, information and, and, and public health uh, education is cancer, right? And so now when we think about uh, one of the biggest stories, like, like it's very easy for media, and here I will point at Joe, now that I was pointed at for coming late. Um, <laughs> but with regard to with regard to media, like media will go viral immediately. The minute they'll say something like, you know, if you sit next to a public, uh, you, if you sit next to a plastic chair in the sun, you are at risk of insert cancer. You know, if you if you stand, uh, you know, at the full moon and howl facing southwest. You, you are at risk of cancer X, you know, if your child, you know, walks to the kiosk with another child and you don't know what that child ate in the morning and maybe they share it and then, you know, so you're, you're being fed something that you don't know, you are at risk of, you know, the Sukuma wiki that Nairobians are by, you are at risk of. So there's a lot of, and so there's a lot of um, virality with regard to the spreading of these incomplete bits of information, mm-hmm. but with regard to types of cancer, da, 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 da. And then another thing that has really gone viral is the idea that if you eat healthy enough, you will be able to f- stave off these things, mm. which is also an incomplete mm. idea. And then again, we turn to the farmer, you know, as as the redeemer. <laughs> and then now we all want to be able to start growing our own, you know, and we, we are back to, to the Duma and we're back to the the massive numbers of green vegetables that we have and, and, you know, animals that are treated well and all of that. And then, so now people want to eat healthy in order to escape illness. And this is illness that we don't have enough knowledge about because there's no amount of eating organically that will save you, for instance, for something that's coming from you, coming for you because it's present in your genes Mm -hmm. and in your family. Um, And there's no amount of eating healthily that will save you from, like maybe a, a stage four thing that we only discovered late. But then you're in a village where they don't do those types of treatments because the only facility they have access to is level three, you know. So there's a lot of issues there where, again, food becomes central and where food is 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 both kind of um, deified and vilified when neither of those things is actually the center. The center, mm-hmm. again, is the dignity and the right of the people to health, which got ignored at the level of the state, whether it is a national state or even at the level of the county, because that's one of the biggest issues that we're having, that the county governments are saying, we're not getting enough budget to run health for everybody. And the national government is saying, see, we we devolved, you know, mm-hmm. and that there's issues there with regard specifically to that thing. So I wanted to point out, out that... Um, the idea of the nutraceutical food as healing, it it does have a very shadowy side where people want to turn again to food and to the farmer to save them because of a, a, a gap with regard to where the state should be intervening and that the gaps are knowledge gaps, they are, you know, um, resource gaps when they're not really food gaps, but food is the one that's being brought into the thing so easily. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we've now come to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Joki, Professor, and Joe, for the interesting insights. Asante, it was lovely to listen to you. You both. Thank you for being an awesome audience. Comment, like, share, subscribe. Asante, sana for listening.